0: From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy and the studios of WPSU on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman.
1: And I'm Chris Beam, and this is Democracy Works.
0: Chris, we're going to talk today about neoliberalism.
1: Yep, and uh, with us is a... uh a noted authority on the subject. Uh, Wendy, I, I'd probably
0: say the noted authority Yeah, yeah at least
1: in, in terms of, as far as um, political theory goes yeah, she's, yeah. she's been mining this for a long time and uh, Yes, not is, in terms
0: of practitioners of neoliberalism
1: Correct, yeah. Theorists yeah, of it, yeah. yes. Uh, so Wendy Brown is the uh, class of 1936 first professor of political science at University of California, Berkeley and uh, a an universally well-regarded uh, uh, political theorist clearly represents the left of the uh, of the uh, philosophical and political spectrum, and uh, is you know critiquing what we would call neoliberalism. So why don't we start there and say what it is that uh, how you understand that?
0: Term. Yeah, because I think these terms neoliberalism, neoconservatism, liberalism, conservatism can be awfully confusing to people.
1: The way I you know I, I would frame it is that uh, you had um, a, a group of theorists who were responding to what they saw as uh, a government that was um, taking on too many social responsibilities, uh, a a politics that was uh, messing with the market. And so neoliberalism said, listen, the job of the state is to um, make markets work better. And um, markets are rational and they produce wealth. So, And let's just let people free enough to, to take them and do what they will with
0: them. Right. Well, that's why I think it's actually useful to contrast it with... Uh Classical laissez-faire, okay, because laissez-faire also, of course, uh, prioritizes the market mm-hmm. and talks about how well markets work and uh, the good consequences that come from uh, from free markets. But the the, the difference here is it's. As I understand it, is that neoliberalism is uh, not so much an effort to limit state power. So in other words, to have it do less that regulates the market, although it does want it to do that, but rather to mobilize state power on behalf of the market. Yeah. And and indeed, even to reconfigure the state as a site of market activity or quasi-market uh, activity.
1: I think, I think both of them are true. On the one hand, you do want to um, get the government out of anything that... Um, uh, makes the government less efficient. Right. But so also, regulation, what have you. You know,
0: I often think about the privatization of prisons as a very neoliberal idea. Mm-hmm. Because here you're taking something that was traditionally a function of government. Right. Uh, and you are handing it over to the market, in effect. I mean, it's still only the state has the power to incarcerate you. Right private actors can't throw you into jail, but but this is basically saying, once we throw you into jail, then we're going to leave it to the market to determine the best way to run the jail. And that means that you're bringing different values. Well, and
1: so and so the argument for doing that is what?
0: Well, the, the market is doing it, for doing it is that the market is efficient, right? and government is not necessarily aiming for right. those
1: goals. The Ideals like uh, equality. And democracy mm-hmm. come into play, and justice, <laughs> and justice, and that is the point that um, that Wendy Brown focuses on, it, it, with respect to what neoliberalism has uh, wrought in our society and around the world. Right? It's not just a matter of privatization or um, you know thinking of things in terms of efficiency and profit, but it is. it has fundamentally undermined the idea of a democratic society, a society that's equal, a society where there is this kind of common enterprise. And so what um, Wendy Brown is arguing is that we are all neoliberals now, and we are all thinking in this very truncated way about what's valuable, what's important. And as a result... Um, we don't have any other ways to talk about these things, about values. So anyway, um, I feel like we've, you know... Oh, we could go on forever. Yeah, it 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 is. It's very interesting. And and, and, and 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 she'll be very interesting, so we should bring her on. I I absolutely agree. So let's do that, and then we'll come back and and, uh, spout some more. Okay. Jenna?
2: This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Wendy Brown. Wendy, thanks for joining us on Democracy Works.
3: It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: So we are going to talk all about neoliberalism today, and it's the subject of your two most recent books, and I thought it would be good to start, as we sometimes do on this show, with with a definition. So uh, how do you define neoliberalism, and, and what do you see as its relationship to democracy?
3: It should be an easy question. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we were in Latin America, Africa, most parts of Uh, Europe and South Asia, it would be an easy question. They're very familiar with neoliberalism as an undoing of social democracies and stripping out of welfare states, unleashing free trade, free markets, and so forth. Uh, North Americans are a little more bewildered by the term, and we don't have it as part of our everyday lexicon, although I think it's finally beginning to seep in. Um, But having said that, I also want to suggest that we understand it at a social and political level and not just an economic level. It certainly is all the things I just listed. Uh, We recognize it as the undoing of the Keynesian welfare state and the substitution of free market policies, low taxes, uh, everyone's responsible for themselves, and getting rid of all the social supports except for a bare minimum safety net. But I want to add that it's also a whole form of governing reason, by which I mean uh, it's a way of understanding society, states, and individuals on an economic plane and only an economic plane. Or at least that was my argument at the end of the first book.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you're, you you talk in your your uh, forthcoming book about how some of your thinking has has changed yes. since then.
3: So one of the things I felt compelled to understand with our hard right turn in the West over the last several years, not just uh, Trump and Bolsonaro and Brexit and so forth, but also the more general um, uprising of a of a ethno nationalist and very patriarchal right political formation, one of the things I wanted to understand was what was the connection of that to neoliberalism. Well, one thing you can say is rising inequality and open borders produces rage about being at the bottom end of that inequality and also about immigrants. But there was something else on the horizon that I had never noticed, which is that The neoliberal scheme was not just to substitute markets for social policy. It was also to substitute traditional moral values for understandings of social justice and institutions of social justice. And so part of what we're experiencing now is what I call the kind of scorpion tail of neoliberalism, The, the lashing out against the inequality, yes, but also the continued insistence that traditional morality, moral values, and traditions more generally from white supremacy to patriarchal families, religion in the public sphere, that those are more appropriate governors of human conduct than any state manded practices of equality or inclusion
2: yeah it it is interesting the the ways that the the economic and the, the moral aspects kind of get mm-hmm. get entangled to, together where have they kind of been one and the same since the the, the foundations of, of these types of theories or did, did one kind of beget the other
3: so in the original neoliberal theories um, most of your listeners will know names like uh, Friedman, Hayek. Less often do we know some of the others who go under a school called the Ordo Liberals, but Europeans really are familiar with them. Um, those, those folks did argue for traditional morality as the necessary twin of free markets. They did not just believe you unleash markets. They also believe you unleash tradition, more generally, and let it substitute for state, what they considered statism and, 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 and uh, state despotism of human conduct. But I think we all tended to see neoconservatism and traditionalism as a separate road from neoliberalism. And part of what I'm trying to do now is figure out whether those really were separate roads or, uh, as I suggest from the original architects, always intended uh, to be of a piece. The place you see this so clearly is in Thatcherism. Margaret Thatcher was just absolutely clear that you needed uh, strong traditional moral uh, values, especially a strong family. Uh, But so was Reagan, Mm -hmm. very clear about that. And even a strong state and strong notions of authority and hierarchy uh, to be a part of the neoliberal program. And then, of course, phenomena like Bolsonaro in Brazil, where you see those things absolutely Mm -hmm. threaded Mm -hmm. together. He, He speaks of himself as eradicating socialism, by which he means both social justice and social welfare.
2: Right. So, thinking about uh, Reagan and Thatcher, so you, you mentioned before, uh, you know Hayek and Friedman and some of these thinkers. How do these ideas make their way from kind of the annals of the academy yeah. into the the highest realms of public policy in the U.S. and the U.K. and well, such perhaps, a good question.
3: Yeah. And and uh, I'll, I'll give one answer here, but it's one of the things that um, academics concerned with neoliberalism spend a lot of time arguing about. Um, Look, I think the easiest way to understand it is that, first, there was a very serious economic crisis, often called a a crisis of profitability in the 70s, uh, that was also often seen as a crisis of the welfare state. Too much taxation, uh, unions too strong, corporations too large and lazy and not really lean and mean, and um, a real problem of stagflation. And at that moment, it was kind of uh how should we say it, it, it was a moment you you could strike with a new set of ideas and it's Milton Friedman himself who says you know what really matters in a crisis is what ideas are lying around and boy was he right because things could have gone another way there would have been other way there's no inevitability to neoliberalism uh, but it had already been experimented with extensively in Latin America. The most famous experiment, of course, is overthrowing uh, a socialist regime in Chile and replacing it with a neoliberal one, literally architected by by Milton Friedman and his students. But also... Um, the experiments had taken place in lots of other places in the third world. The IMF was already solidly neoliberal. So bringing it up to the north wasn't so difficult once Reagan and Thatcher were in power.
2: How do Donald Trump and these other kind of mm. populist leaders you, you've you mentioned fit into this picture?
3: Yeah. it's. I mean, there are two ways of reading it. What many people have argued is what you get with the rise of this ethno-nationalist right is the end of neoliberalism. And it's Cornel West who says (laughs) right after the election of Trump, uh, the neoliberal decades just ended with a neo-fascist bang. Um, His beautiful way with words. Uh, And Uh, I think he's right in some ways. Um, uh, In other ways, I want to suggest we are seeing the continued unfurling of neoliberal policies, both in traditional morality and in the predominance of concern with economic over other kinds of values when it comes to justice. So, yes, there's some new elements that have been thrown into the Scene, And I've also suggested in the second book I wrote on the subject that none of this is what the original neoliberals wanted. They wanted a smooth, pacified citizenry, basically divested of any democratic voice with a state-tended free market economy. Where there was not plutocracy, where there was not oligarchy, and where above all there was not a mobilized mass. So some of this is a neoliberal effect that the neoliberals hadn't planned on. But some of it I want to suggest is also still neoliberalism in play.
2: I'm a millennial. This has kind mm. of always been the way the world has been yep. ever since I, I've, I've right. grown up. So, uh, how do you think that you know younger generations, millennials, and you know Generation Z still to come, what are they going to to make of all this? On the one hand, it is kind of the only thing they've ever known, but I think that there there might be some sentiments that they are leaning. You know, they're they're embracing people like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and people of very different ideas yes. about about how how the the world should operate.
3: So one of the things I'm struck by in your generation, um, the, the sentient, political, lefty-leaning part of your generation, is that you all are faced with two things simultaneously. One, a, 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 a lack of certainty that the earth is going to last as long as your lifetime would require it to last to sustain you, and on the other hand, incredible precarity at every level— uh, none of the guarantees of my generation, even at the working class level of stable jobs, um, ability to educate and raise your children, and uh, ability to imagine a comfortable retirement and possibly, you know decent home ownership. that's just gone. So what a what a world in which—I mean, it's a kind of schizophrenic subjectivity. You're nodding, I think, <laughs> that most of you have. Um, but I think it's precisely the one from which rejection of capitalism, not even just the neoliberal term, but a rejection of capitalism and of the sluggish dinosaur-like pace of parliamentary or constitutional democracy that is now— so deeply corrupted by uh, neoliberal money and corporate power. I, I One of the things I see coming from your generation is the rejection of those two things as the necessary coordinates of the political and economic future. And I think all the hope rests there. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry that we bequeathed you this world. I think it's, it, I mean, it's, it's an unforgivable thing for the boomer generation, so-called, uh, that had all the sort of political latitude and social room in the world to make a uh, better future, um, got got lazy or stupid at the moment of the neoliberal revolution and didn't stop it. Yeah. <laughs> but here it is. And I do see both in the response to Ocasio-Cortez and and obviously Bernie Sanders, but also the utter lack of, what do we want to call it, um, worry about the term socialism and uh, interest in working in kind of extra, um, working politically but not necessarily through the conventional institutions, um, seems to me to suggest something promising, if not absolutely hopeful.
2: So I, I have to say, I, I thought a lot about David Frum when I was reading mm. your book. We, we've had him on campus; he was actually mm-hmm. been on this show before, and he articulates a vision of democracy where it's about. Joining something—it's about kind of getting involved at the at the local level, yeah. and you're letting letting the markets play out, yeah. kind of how they play out, and you know, democracy really is more on this like much smaller scale. Yeah.
3: What what Where it what do you make really of that? Hurt yeah. Anything, yeah, it yeah, yeah. 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 So there's nothing wrong with it in itself. Why I'm impatient with it as a way to. Um, Redress either the gross inequality or the serious existential dangers that we face now is that it's basically saying, go join something, go feel like you're part of something, but let the major powers that shape our lives run through markets, which presumably run through no hands at all. We rather desperately need to get our hands on those powers. And um, it's not just that I want a higher level of democratized political and social power. I do, then he does. But I also uh, think it's it's a, a, a kind of soporific. It's a kind of, you know, go ahead and take this, let this be your democratic playpen. Well, markets wreak hell. I'm not even just going to say havoc, but wreak hell on some of our most um, precious and precarious and 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 vulnerable species and and domains and problems and um, I it I won't do yeah. I, I'm, I' I do want to say of course there are m- many Democratic candidates today who say what we need to do is get control of markets again it's not that we need to eliminate capitalism we're not going all the way over with with Bernie and mm-hmm. and with um AOC to democratic socialism, but we're trying to, you know, get get some fairness back into the system and some control back into the system. I am not against that. I'm actually for anything other than our current conjuncture. But I um, think it's a little naive given globalization, mm-hmm. the the danger we face today. Is that trying to control markets at the state level is just about impossible? You need to do something a little more than just imagine governing them because the finance, in particular, but also most forms of production, are dispersed around the globe.
2: Sure. Yeah. and I mean, we can think of examples like like um, higher education. You know, that's very very much consumer driven. Or thinking of students as consumers. Mm. To you know, privatizing prisons. And and I'm just wondering, like, are these things because there's been a generation or so of, of this thought, is it almost past the point of no return where these systems are so ingrained that we're, we're not going to to be able to, to bring them back to what might be a more democratic
3: model? I have two thoughts about that. One is it's really important to remember just what you said. It's just one generation. Keynesianism lasted for 50 years. No one thought it could be taken apart. It was here to stay. The question for the neoliberals was always to try to figure figure out how to keep it from getting worse, how to, how to prevent the straight on drive toward complete uh, socialism and keep some markets in the picture. So one generation is not a lot. The second thing I want to say is that we are obviously in a very serious political crisis. We've already talked about the crisis of climate change, but we're in an extreme political crisis where at not just the left and right edges, but left and right mainstreams now um the impatience with the with the current system and the belief that it's not serving people or the planet is very strong and so um, it doesn't seem to me this is the moment to say, well, it's just so insedimented now. I don't see how we can turn it back. Look, so many privatizing fi- uh, endeavors have also failed. Look, look at the, for example, the the whole world of privatized higher education. People know that it actually has been largely a disaster, both for learning and for and for uh, generating job ready so called. Um, Outcomes for research, and then of course the proprietaries, the absolute for-profit schools, are nothing but a scandal. So, and and you know, we're some of the same stuff is now known about privatizing prisons. Um, you know, the the level of waste, but also the level of abuse and scandal is.
2: What can individuals do to have you know help shape a more democratic? future, whatever the kind of next generation holds?
3: So I think there's lots of different things people can do. Some of them, um, many of them are local. I think a lot of the local experiments in everything from um, addressing housing crises, for example, where I live in the Bay Area, um, in in forms other than through just turning to the markets, uh, which brought us to the past where, you know, uh, we no longer are a place where young people can afford to live and work. Ninety percent of our school teachers cannot live in the Bay Area towns where they teach. Um, so we, we're in that kind of a crisis, and that means that there are ways of addressing things through political councils, boards of supervisors, um, and What's really exciting forms of low-income housing trusts and affordability housing affordability trusts that are trying to build and develop and maintain um, housing stock that is not simply submitted to st- speculation. That's important in itself, but it's also important as a model. We can do this another way. We can take care of ourselves. We we don't have to pile up the homeless so that we look increasingly like third world nations with tent cities at the edges of our freeways. But at the same time, I think that what I'm struck by in, for example, teaching undergraduates, whenever I talk to undergraduates about being little bits of human capital, self-investing and on a kind of hamster wheel to nowhere, as soon as we get the the basic picture out and they, they, they get what, what you described as a little a, a little distance on on what otherwise is the water they swim in, um, the 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 response is usually I don't want to be human capital I I don't want to be a self investing neurotic anxiety driven um, performance enhancing drug taking little creature endlessly trying to just stay afloat here. There's got to be another way. So I think there's possibilities to do things locally in education, in thinking, in addressing our political problems um, as individual citizens, Letters to the editor, old-fashioned things, call-in shows, blogs, responses, that that began to break with the idea that everything must be dealt with through markets.
2: Yes. So is, is the, the idea then that all those local changes would, would scale up to the state or to the, the
3: national level? So rather than thinking of them as only scaling up or not, I think it's important to see them as models. Because when you see a model of something, you think, oh... That's how how, um, environmentally sustainable farming happened. It's not that it scaled up to agribusiness levels. It's that the idea that you could grow a good strawberry without pesticides, without heavy labor exploitation, and without costing $6 per strawberry at the farmer's market, um, that model then began to be imitated not just all over the country but all over the world. And, and so I think it's more important to think about modeling alternatives than just scaling them up. Because at some point, a big shift in the economy is required that these models produce the possibility of of accepting or reckoning with rather than resisting as, as terrifying.
2: Mm-hmm. We were talking about morality earlier, this notion of traditional morality. Where does the notion of morality come from and, and what makes it traditional? Whose Mm -hmm. traditions are they?
3: So an important question. So from from Hayek um, you get this idea that um, any tradition that has lasted over time is a good tradition. And what he adds to that is the only traditions that last over time are those that center family, property, and freedom. So he both Makes a kind of what we would call these days empirical and historical claim, and then one kind of to the side of that very ideological claim that tradition always will be centered in family, property, and um, freedom, personal freedom. And he, leaving him now to one side for a second, what what you get in this affirmation today of traditional morality, I think is an expression or a concern to hang on to what's left of the privilege of a largely deprivileged, dethroned, deracinated, uprooted, uh, largely white group of people on— in the Euro-Atlantic and now some of them in in Brazil and other parts of Latin America as well, who are hanging on to the idea of their supremacy or their anointing by God or their anointing by the nation uh, by their teeth. And I think what's important to see is the way tradition is serving a kind of supremacism, male supremacism, white supremacism, and nativism that has been eroded not just by social justice mandates, but by neoliberalism itself. It's what toppled uh, unions. It's what toppled good jobs in the North. And the neoliberals knew that that would happen. They knew if you set capital loose and you unburdened trade from tariffs and other barriers, that it, capital would go chasing the cheapest labor on the planet, and that would not be in the North. They knew it was going to devastate the the stability and the security of a white working and middle class, and lo and behold, it did. What they didn't count on is that that white and working middle class would rise up clinging to its traditional values and scream politically, not just against social justice warriors, but also against the system that itself had dethroned them.
2: If, as, as you suggest, um, you know, democratic capitalism can't work because of of globalization, doesn't that then necessitate a more global solution or global answer Mm -hmm. to this problem?
3: So here's where we're in a kind of interregnum between the global and the national. Um, and, you know, we feel it all the time, that interregnum, uh, where we are looking for certain kinds of solutions to problems, like to climate change or even to international transnational migration. We're looking to global institutions and global enforcement to solve those problems. We're therefore looking to extremely anti-democratic uh Institutional solutions to dire problems, and I think we probably have to accept that that's what we're doing, even if we are relentlessly democratic in our souls and in other ways. On the other hand, we we are when we think about what to do f- in relationship to. Um, a neoliberalized global political economy, nothing is scarier, I think, than the idea of masters of the universe taking that in hand, which is what we have to some degree already in the IMF and the World Bank. And if we were to kind of step it up, what scares me about it is, first of all, even if it tilted in what we might call social or s- social democratic directions, it's hard to see where the democracy would be. And other than you know, de- democracy in the sense of more equality, but that's not all there is to democracy. But m- more worrisome to me is reiterating the very thing that happened in the 70s uh, with the um, new international economic order. Uh, coming from the South that was trying to say, wait, wait, you guys have stomped all over us for uh, a couple of centuries. With colonialism and imperialism, now you're about to unleash a a global economic order. We need some adjustments made in our favor and so that we can get on an equal playing field. If that happens, you're going to get global civil war, I don't have another way to put it. You're either going to get a responsiveness to that um, on on the part of those masters of the universe, and then then the North, you know, does what it's doing right now, which is raging against its dark brethren and sisters in the in the South as it comes over its borders, or you're going to get the opposite. You throw the South under the bus. So I I I worry. About, I mean, on the one hand. International socialism as, as a long and marvelous dream. Uh, but on the other hand, what that dream never dealt with was the question of uh, political power and political mm-hmm. management. And that's the scariest stuff to me of all.
2: So, uh, Wendy, we're, we're going to end, as we always do, with our four Mood of the Nation poll questions. So, thinking about politics and, and what's going on in the U.S. or throughout the world today, what makes you angry?
3: I could do this. <laughs> uh, that some of the most important stories of promise and uh, of... Of courage don't make it into the mainstream press and the front pages
2: uh, what makes you proud
3: those very stories uh, the people you least expect to be uh, to have time and space and room in their psyches or their lives uh, to remake this world and to give it another chance um, are that they that they do that kind of thing now uh, what makes you worry That we're running out of time.
2: And then finally, what gives you hope?
3: Your generation.
2: All right. Wendy Brown, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Well, that was very interesting and uh, terrific guest. I think she really does lay out, give you an idea at least of the complexity of the idea Mm -hmm. of uh, neoliberalism.
1: Well, and, and it is a... Genuine contribution to something that I think you know we have tried to do with this podcast is just to give people a sense of what's going on, right? Why is why is what's happening happening? And and the idea that you have to have some sense of that before you can know what to do about it, right? And and uh, I, I think it's it's uh, in that sense irrespective of where you come down politically it's a genuine contribution to our public debate.
0: yeah and it's timely too because it's really striking how and I know a lot of this is coming from uh, well it's coming from both sides actually you know a lot of the uh, campaign to date has been about uh, debating you know sort of these big ideologies socialism, capitalism uh, nobody talks about neoliberalism because if they haven't listened to our podcast they don't really understand <laughs> what it is but but you know but socialism certainly,
1: Right. You know, you, you certainly have this idea, and, and this is something that, that she reflected on, was that um, young people are looking at the world right now and they're looking at their own futures in it and uh, sensing a, a kind of precariousness yeah. that we didn't experience at their age. And they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for this. It does sort of, <laughs> I, it does,
0: you know, it, it, it offers a way of thinking about the way uh, younger voters flock to Bernie Sanders in 2016. Mm -hmm. And it puzzled people. Really? They're all socialists? All these younger voters want socialism? And I don't know that that's really the case, so much as they know that the status quo which we're defining as
1: neoliberalism, is not OK. Right. And, and uh, not the way they want to live it's their It's not lives. working out exactly for what That's yeah. exactly what she was saying. I don't want to be just yeah. human capital, right? I, I want to have a, a, something more to my time on this earth than just being you know, a profit maximizer. Right. And um, and so they say that while
0: recognizing the high degree of professionalization they require and all of that to succeed in today's. Well,
1: and, you know, and, you know, it's it's also fair to say that she's at, at Berkeley, which is, you know, a public school, but as hard to get into as any school in the country. And so these students have experienced this already, right, in terms of the com- kind of competition that's required for them to get into Berkeley in the first
0: place. Well, sure. I mean, isn't that part of the sort of uh, backstory of this <laughs> ridiculous yet really disturbing scandal having to do with college admissions? Yes, yes. Right? And, you know, when, when you think about people... Paying $500,000 to get into USC or, mm-hmm. or cheating, mm-hmm. right? All mm-hmm. these different forms yeah, of cheating. All kinds.
1: So I think this this idea that um, what Wendy Brown says in her book um, is that neoliberalism doesn't just uh, put economic goals and values as the only values. It um, undermines and denigrates any other values. Right. So conscience... Yeah. Um, declines. The idea of other kinds of morality, fairness. It's, if, if this is a, um, a fight or a competition in which, um, you know, Winning is about making more money than the other person, then that's the way you evaluate your behavior. That's the way you evaluate your choices. You know, and really, you know, neoliberalism seems to be kind
0: of traced back in the United States anyway to Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. As it seems to be. And, you know, one of Ronald Reagan's greatest phrases are both well-known phrases is that, you know— uh, something about governments. Uh, the, what's the worst thing you can hear? Right. Government will take care of that. Oh, so no,
1: I, I'm from the government, and I'm here to help. Right. The that's wor- it, That's yeah. the worst thing mm-hmm. you can hear. And then, you know, Bill
0: Clinton just picks up on that right. later on when he, when he basically says government's a problem.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he said uh, um, the era of big government the is over. The era of big government is yeah, over. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and, you know, and so you and I were around when this kind of came into being and really kind of took over. Wendy Brown says we are all neoliberals in some sense and you can and that i think is is persuasive because we're all talking about our um our own personal branding and and how we um position ourselves in in the marketplace and why we do things and again not an illegitimate idea not an illegitimate thought the problem is when it becomes the only Criteria, the only thought. And that's her argument, I think. Anyway, I should, um, I need to mention her book. Um, It's called In the Ruins of Neoliberalism The Rise of Anti Democratic Politics in the West. I Mm -hmm. wish
0: we had talked about it more with
1: David Frump. I do too. It would be interesting to get those two very smart people together. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. um, That would be a good podcast. That would be a good podcast. Better than the kind of drivel that you and I produce. So for uh, the McCourtney Institute for Democracy and the studios of WPSU, this has been Democracy Works. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. Thanks for listening.
2: Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State. Our hosts are Michael Berkman, Chris Beam, and me, Jenna Spinelli. Andy Grant is our engineer, and Mark Stitzer is our editor. Additional support comes from Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. For detailed show notes and discussion questions for each episode, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. And if you like what you heard today, please consider rating or reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.